There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Content warning. Check the show notes for more information. It's April 24th. 1644, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. By the 1640s, it's fair to say that things weren't going incredibly well for the last Ming emperor of China. He was facing multiple pandemics, an invasion, two internal rebellions, persistent drought, widespread famine, and an economic collapse. So, when he spontaneously decided to kill his family and hang himself today in history in 1644, it looks overwhelmingly likely that it probably wasn't all that spontaneous. Yeah, indeed, because the enemy were on the horizon for quite some time. And depending on which source you read and which historian attributes which event to which date, by this point, he'd already gone on a bit of a killing rampage. Yeah, it made it all the more ironic that his regnal name, the Chongzang Emperor, optimistically means honourable and auspicious, but actually his 20-year reign had been pretty dicey from the start. Pretty dicey. Pretty That's dicey. classic English understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he didn't seem like the most auspicious heir from the start. He was born Zhu Yuzhan. He was the fifth son of the emperor, born to a low-ranking concubine who was executed when he was four, which left him being passed around at various other royal consorts. Three of his brothers then died, which just left him and his his older half-brother Yu Zhao. Yu Zhao took the throne. He had an infant son who died in this insane massive gunpowder explosion in Beijing in 1626. It killed 20,000 people and it wow. rocked the walls of the Forbidden City. So when Yu Zhao himself died the following year, it was left to 16-year-old Zhu to take the throne. And this explosion, it was called the Wangong Chang explosion, contributed to the widespread discontent with the Ming dynasty, which had been around for a few hundred years at this point. And so when Zhu became emperor, he really set about trying to rectify this feeling and also steady the ship in general because he's still a very young man at this stage he's in his late teens and there is a very powerful eunuch Wei who has been hanging around the royal court and really holding the levers of power through this period of uncertainty between the two brothers and so when Zhu gets onto the throne he starts pretty much just uh, eliminating people around him it's almost as though in trying to take out the uh, threats around him. He actually endangered his empire yet further because he had stripped away any people who were capable within the royal court. Yeah, well, this eunuch, Wei, never liked Zhu as heir. He'd wanted a baby to come to the throne so that he could run things with a sort of puppet emperor. Mm. And so Zhu apparently used to hold a sword at night in bed and always stayed with large numbers of people so that he wouldn't be assassinated by this eunuch who was also supposedly doing his bidding. Yeah, and like all stagnant, long-lived regimes, it was really hard to force change. He wanted to address some of the issues. You know, corruption was endemic. There wasn't very much money in the royal coffers. And there were just these legions of self-serving officials and bureaucrats who were totally resistant to change. But he did try to change some of that. But what he couldn't control were these natural forces arrayed against him. The Little Ice Age in the mid-17th century was causing droughts and famine. There was also a decade-long plague. And the impact wasn't only literal, but also contributed to, you know, I was saying before about the explosion, this belief 
that the divine forces were against the emperor and against the Ming dynasty. And starting in 1641, multiple rebel armies had risen up and seized strongholds within the kingdom. And the number one of those was led by a peasant general called Li Xingcheng, who emerged as the most successful. And it was it was him and his army who were approaching Beijing to take over the city on this day. Yeah. Contemporary scholarship tends to be a bit more kind to Zhu because he really wasn't especially terrible by the standards of the later Ming, and yet he was there to witness its downfall. And in many ways, he did his best to save his dynasty, but it was kind of his paranoia and his impatience that really doomed the whole Ming. And it's easy to look back on these moments of inflection and go, well, he was responsible for it. But actually, there was so much to undo. And that little ice age that Rebecca mentioned was in part responsible for driving some of these tribal groups towards Beijing, including the Zhurchens, who were later renamed the Manchus, and later went on to be the uh, Qing dynasty after the Ming is replaced. You know, they were being driven south by the fact that the world was getting so cold. So there was this combination of factors, some human, some very much uh, climatic and environmental, that was conspiring against you. And if you're thinking, like, why would any peasant leader advance on the Forbidden City and think they'd get away with deposing a dynasty that's been there for hundreds of years? It's because the Chinese system of monarchy ruled according to the Mandate of Heaven, which superficially sounds a bit like the European divine right of kings that we know here. But it isn't. It crucially isn't. So in Britain, for example, royals are not supposed to be deposed ever. That's why they all end up killing each other. Because God has appointed them. The public are led to believe God has appointed Henry IV or Henry VIII, whoever it is, and governs through them. And that's the divine right of kings. But in China, although it sounds similar, you can lose the mandate under the mandate of heaven. It's mm. God decides who's going to be king. But then if there's famine or an uprising, and there had been both of those things in this period, any rebel leader, regardless of their birth, they didn't have to be the son of a former king, could win heaven's approval in their place. The mandate changed hands. God changes his mind. Mm. It's a really crucial difference. So, you know, if, if you're advancing on the Forbidden City, you're thinking, if I can persuade the public that I'm doing this in God's name because God is clearly signalling to us it's time for a change, you can get away with this. Yeah, and in the end, it was very real forces that proved the city's undoing, namely that the militia who were supposed to be guarding Beijing hadn't been paid in a year. You know, they were ragged and hungry. There just weren't sufficient defence forces. And also, Zhu was incredibly stubborn. You know, he'd been advised to swell the ranks of his military and he hadn't done it. He had been advised to flee to Nanjing with his family. He refused to do that. Instead, he gathered them all together, including his empress, Zhao, the leader of his many uh, consorts, and their children, and he sent his sons out of the city first, disguised as common folk. And Empress Zhao was at least accorded the privilege of being able to take her own life. And this is where things started to get a bit messier, which was this. <laughs> this is where his Elon Musk talent management I mean, skills kick in. <laughs> so far, so dignified, you know. Yeah, but sure. then what happened was their 16-year-old daughter, Chang Ping, came across her mother's body in the temple. And when her father, the Empress Zhu, came across her weeping over the corpse, he apparently shouted, why must you be born in this family? And struck her with his sword, cutting off her left arm, and then he fled. Yeah, I mean, he knew at this stage that the writing was on the wall, and really he was just trying to, I suppose, spare them what 
disaster would inevitably befall them had they fallen into the hands of the incoming armies. But, I mean, the concubines? I mean, I know it's not a great life anyway, but is is this next emperor going to come along and say, oh, I don't want your old concubines? I don't think so. They've got a chance, haven't they? <laughs> Look, no one likes a new boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So there is some su- suggestion that uh, there was a mass suicide incident that potentially involved up to a couple of hundred people from the Which, court. If it happened, would be the largest mass suicide of all time. Important detail. Yeah, hugely important. But it's there is a bit of scepticism. At the same time, it is believable because I suppose you can understand why the household, at the very least, if not the extended court, wouldn't want to be sticking around and taking the fate that was going to come their way after the takeover. Yeah, and I mean, one reason is very is very obvious, you know, that they might not want to fall into the hands of the enemy. But there was one that was slightly less obvious that I found interesting. One suggestion as to why as many as 200 courtiers, most of them female, most of them concubines, would decide to throw themselves into the river, was that the Ming emperors drew their concubines from all across the empire and particularly concentrating on peasant families, specifically because they wanted to avoid the danger of having these ambitious noble families with access mm. to, you know, the imperial household. So these girls and women, you know, if they had left the Forbidden City, which really was the only life they knew at this point, they had no resources and no hope of ever reaching their native villages, you know, that could have been over a thousand miles away. Mm. He then swept through his harem, supposedly putting to the sword all the concubines who hadn't already taken the polite hint that they should be committing suicide, (laughs) including one of his consorts, Consort Yuan, who he stabbed three times, but she survived as well. You know, his hit rate was not great. Zhu, after hacking at his family, did then uh, leave the Forbidden City by the back door, as you would. And walking up this hill, he was then in a position to watch the incoming armies and, I suppose, really survey the what remained of his dominion as his empire unravelled around him, which must have been a pretty sad sight. Yeah. I mean, if you've been brought up into that life, then you failed, haven't you? I mean, that's the thing he's got to be thinking at the end. It's pretty miserable. Yeah. And one of the reasons that Zhu went on to become, you know, in a kind of an iconic figure in Chinese history, albeit in a tragic way, was that the new Manchu-led regime that would eventually take over as the Qing dynasty, they really positioned themselves as the inheritors to the Ming rather than the vanquishers. They actually used the emperor's suicide as a kind of justification for their conquest because they then said that they were there to avenge the emperor, clever, you know, that they're now positioning themselves as the rightful Mm. inheritors. Because, you know, obviously at the end of an empire, there's a lot of leftover political apparatus still sitting around that you want to subsume. Yeah, there's a lot of eunuchs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some eunuchs you kill and some eunuchs you you take into your harem. It's a buyer's market for eunuchs. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow who had seen Mozart and Beethoven play said, oh, he's better than Mozart. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.